Amy Toby, and uh, this weird thing happened to me. Uh, I quit my job, and the person who recruited me to that job said, hey, you should talk to Jess. And uh, so we had a little text conversation that ended up in me being here. And so welcome to the Weird Trick Mafia. It's the Weird Trick Mafia. Woo. So Amy, what do you do? What uh, have you done? What have you done? These days, I, I uh, self-ID as an SRE uh, or DBRE, or um, I might do another swing through management someday. Um, I've been doing operation for about 20 years now. I dropped out of music school in the late 90s and got a job as a junior systems administrator at a stock trading firm. Uh, that one, I, I like to tell a story about that one because on my second day uh, of my first job out of college, having just like given up everything and switched careers entirely, I was sitting in the data center because that's what you did in the day. And um, the, the, the senior guy walks by and says, hey, Toby, go log into this machine. And he pointed at it because it was right there. It was a spark station and log in and, and just kill this process and it'll restart itself. Okay, so I walk in, I log in and uh, I type kill all process name. And it was a Solaris box. So kill all on Solaris kills literally everything and it crashes and about two seconds later, the phone rings and I pick it up and I didn't even get to say hello. And the stock trader screams at me, what the, it's going on down there. And uh, th that was the story of when I almost got fired on my first job on the second day. Um, I feel like I feel like we missed a little bit of this story. How did you go from music school to that job? You just like walked in. And you're like, I can I can type commands on a Unix. Yeah, phone? it was MUDs. Um, I was playing MUDs through uh, most of the late '90s and started to want to change them a little bit. And so I picked up the uh, Learn C in 21 Days book that was kind of popular at the time, and fooled through that a little bit, hacked together a few th mods for uh, smog mud and played around with them. And then I was talking to some people online about all the trouble I was having with Sigwin on Windows 95. And they said, hey, you should check out Linux. I'm like, what the hell is that? And so I went down and bought the Slackware Unleashed book with the CD in the back and installed it on the PC, ruined the boot sector so I couldn't dual boot and then spent the next the whole summer kind of figuring out how to make all this stuff work again. When I got to the end, I was like, that was kind of fun. I wonder if I could get work doing this. And it turns out I could. Fantastic. So, so you brought down the trading floor or what was that? It was just like one of the feeds uh, called the wave, if I remember right. And it was just a, uh, one of the trading feeds. I don't remember the specifics. It was 20 years ago. So with that journey 20 years ago, a lot of things have changed since uh, 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, one, nobody works in the data center anymore, I don't think. Or maybe a few. Um, Some people have to. Not so many spark boxes around. Um, that was one of the first uh, stock trading firms to, to do online trading. That was kind of cool. And it's now part of H&R Block's trading firm. Um, but the, what's changed since then, like, we used to, I mean, that, that, that environment, one of the first programming jobs I had was to write a little INET D wrapper so that when people telneted into a system, it would tell them to go away and use SSH. Um, so it was all our login based and telnet and that switched to SSH. Um, you know, there was almost no Linux. We put a pair of H, HA pair of Linux machines on the, the NASDAQ in like 99 
fixed because we had to take uh, multicast UDP off the network and push it to a Stratus box. You don't hear much about those anymore. Um, you know, but it was that, that whole like going and touching machines. And when you installed an operating system, you would walk into the data center with a disk at that place anyway. Oh. And, you know, and then uh, the next job is started to become things like, oh, we pixie boot the servers and do an automatic install, right? And then setting up Kickstart for the Linux machines. And so that was a that was the next progression, I think. Um, was that like hipster at the time? Like, was it like oh a, yeah. oh a yeah. thought process of being crazy? <laughs> oh yeah, I remember when you could get some darn good work just because you could manage to make Kickstart work. Um, nice. You know, most people don't think much of it today because we're all used, you know, we have gold, we're back to golden images again. Because that was the other thing that was popular at the time is, you know, you'd have a, a golden image on a tape sometimes that you just ran back off to the disk. Yeah, you know, CERN still uses tape drives. Like I was just there. there they, and the only one person like manufactures tape drives anymore, it's IBM. So it's like they have this like monopoly market over <laughs> tape drives. Yeah, for the amount of data they produce though, it's kind of still an efficient format. It is, no, that's what they were saying. It's crazy though, but it, it's like really cool. <laughs> mm. so, yeah, so, I mean, we, we've gone through like big waves of of tooling and changes, what's, maybe we could walk through more of it, but hmm. I'm sure you have more stories. But like, what do you see as the difference or what do you see as the same kind of just at a high level? Hmm. I think the, uh, it, with all the work we put into, this one might be controversial, but with all the, the talk and work we've done around DevOps and all this and SRE and everything over the years, the problems with software engineering haven't changed that much. And so we've changed the deploy tools and we've gotten continuous uh, deployment. We've got testing and all this stuff that, that's really grown, but the operational problems that happen in production haven't really, that, I don't feel like that needle has moved really at all. Um, you know, bugs still make it to production. Bugs still take the whole system down. Bugs still destroy data in the database that requires a backup or a restore from backup. That stuff has been the same the whole time. And I, I feel like there was an expectation that this, as we moved along this journey of DevOps, that we would start to see less of that stuff happen. But the reality is that, at least from my perspective, that it still happens regardless of how much testing, regardless of the language, regardless of um, all the platforms that have shifted and changed over the years. So it, it should be better by now. Yeah, I was gonna say like, do you think like history then is just like repeating itself over and over again? Because you said like with um, Kickstarter, it's like anyone who was like well-versed in that or could debug it, like could get a job. And I almost feel like that technology stack is just moving. Like it's just something yeah. else the next year and something else. Oh yeah, yeah. Now today it's if you can get Kubernetes running, you got you got an easy door, you know, easy access to operations jobs anywhere. Um, whereas it was Kickstart 15 years ago and whatever the other Debian one was that I've never used because we always just use tarballs for that. <laughs> um, there, there is a bit of that cyclical thing, right? Like we had the whole, uh, now we've, we've migrated everything into the cloud. So now I'm waiting for the move everything out of the cloud back onto on-prem. That's gonna happen at some point, I think. You're, you're really calling that? I, I'm, uh, uh, I think it'll happen eventually. It might be like more of a federation thing than a, um, than a return to on-prem data centers. Yeah, we'll see. I, I'm not sure I would bet. I would bet that, but I, I do think that there's um, an over exuberance without much justification for some of the migrations. 
Hmm. Well, I mean, if, for people who have run data centers and places I've worked uh, in, in recent years, even it, it's a lot of a, a lot of work, and you and you, the whole capacity management problem becomes a lot bigger when you have your own machines to manage and you've got to order them ahead of time. Absolutely. And that there's so much attraction to just getting out of that business altogether, even if it's more expensive. And it's often more expensive. I, I think the question then is like, what is your, what is your value of doing that work in the context of whatever particular thing? I, I do think there are reasons, uh, financial reasons, functional reasons to have data center assets. I just see that over time shifting more and more away from data center. So I'm, I'm interested in why or, or what factors you think would drag people back into the data center. Uh, it's stuff like it's more of the security side is where you hear it most is I have to be able to if I'm an organization that holds personal identifiable information, I have to be able to account for where that information is at all times. Right. That's my responsibility if I'm managing that data and we can kind of fuzz that stuff in the cloud and say, oh, it's in US East and it's encrypted in S3. Um, but I, I think there, and I've already run into it in different situations, like when I was at DataStax, companies are just like, nope, we have to be on-prem because these are the promises we made our customers. But the the need for that privacy is that grows. I'm I'm curious how that's going to shift people's or shift organizations' demands for controlling data provenance. So I mean, there's definitely reasons when you start looking at the compliance and, and, you know, data sovereignty, data, data provenance. Um, I think most of those are going to be overcome with some compensating controls, like by the cloud providers trying to recognize that. Um, and, and I don't know, we'll, we'll see where it goes, but I, I'm, I'm less, um, I'm less bullish on the, on the data center migration. Oh, I don't think it's anywhere soon. And like I said, it'll probably look very different from, you know, having a data center in the basement of your building. Um, you know, maybe it's just a disaggregation of the cloud's data centers. I don't know. So you, you made the point that you thought things would be better or, or we hope they would be better, maybe collectively. What, what do you think could be done to make it better? Or what, what's the, why isn't it better? I, I, my take is, and I, I think this isn't uncommon, is that we've been too mechanistic about it. So the focus has been on if we build better tools, and we improve these processes by automating them, magically, the problems will go away. But it's never been a technical problem. It's always been a people problem. And that's something I've really kind of slowly figured out over that 20 years. And, and only in the last few have it, has it really kind of slammed home for me. But I think that's that's really where the next couple of uh, big improvements, if, if we hope to, is, is just being like, how do we take better care of our people and make sure that they're making decisions with their brains fully online? Um, you know, without fear. And I think that's, that's where we'll start to see actual wins in reliability and resilience, that kind of stuff. So like, how, how, how can that be done? Well, because honestly, like, in, from my perspective, like, I don't know if I've ever seen that done well. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's super unevenly distributed there. I think there are little places here and there and you hear about them, right? Like we, we all follow people on Twitter who are in places where they feel happy and supported and that they can make decisions. Um, it, it's, it comes down to uh, those personal relationships and how well they form and how well they're groomed. And some people, you know, management trees and so on, spend the time to make sure that people are doing well and that they're 
getting enough time off and that they're rested when they're writing code or, or deploying things. And some places just want to get everything that they can out of that person. And it's a different, yeah, like a warm body. Yeah, well, in, it's, it's, in a lot of orgs, that's what we are. I think that there is is obviously some complexity here, and there's a bunch of things that are first order in the system. So you mentioned the the people and and how rested they are, and then there's also an, an aspect of how the people relate to the mission that they're on and how their values align with that mission, and then there's also feedback loops. So one of the things that that you focused on and and that definitely has been an aspect of of my focus in career too is this you know post facto operational responsibility and and doing this kind of work uh, to keep these things alive but it turns out that a lot of the decisions that get made in the development upstream um, particularly with respect to architecture and, and other aspects of how you're using databases or whatever have a huge impact on on how things can be um, made reliable and recovered. And if you don't have a feedback loop from the engineering organization into those operational responsibilities, then you can pretty much always expect to have suboptimal decision-making because why, why do I care? It's not, it's not me that gets woken up. Who cares? Uh, you know, and there, there's the other part, which is that you mentioned, and there are sometimes feedback loops between operations and engineering, but what's missing is the feedback loop from operations to product. And I've noticed this almost everywhere I've worked, where, you know, we set up a, a nice life cycle or a nice cycle where, you know, ops notices stuff happening in production, they go tell engineering, engineering writes up a ticket, it goes into the eternal backlog and sits there forever. Um, what so that what that tells me is that the missing function is that the business isn't aware of where things are broken or where where they need to invest and it's because the information isn't getting there or they just don't care and but i don't feel like that that's something that most orgs don't care about i think it's just that the information isn't getting to the right places and and there's there's almost never a, a direct line from product to say sre and and i think that's the missing bit i think you're right but i'll take it a a, a step farther which is there's all sorts of missing feedback loops. And I will guarantee you every single organization has a gold mine of product information in their customer support organization. Absolutely. In, in their pre-sales organization, in their, every, everyone that touches anything touches the customer. If those don't have feedback loops into product and engineering, then you know, they, they just languish and, and never get better. That was that was my frustration in my in what I was doing Cassandra work, was I would go out and do evangelism work and talk to customers running Cassandra. Often go help them get out of bad situations or their compactions run away or whatever, and talk to them about what their experience is. And they would say, you know, operating this thing is hard. I have to understand the whole database to really make good decisions about what changes to make to get out of operational situations, and I have to do it all over JMX, and that doesn't feel great. Um, and so I would take that back to home office and, and all, the sales engineers would do the same thing, right? They had very similar conversations and we used to talk a lot, but we try to take that into product and engineering and they would go, oh, you know, that, that that's, they're just whining or they're not, you know, always, there was always some reason that didn't really make sense to me, but you know, you've got to pick your battles, right? So uh, I did see that a lot and I think they've gotten better at it because now they have some support, senior people and support that 
that we'll take that information back to engineering. But I think that's there's so many SaaS. And, one specific example, but I think this is actually the industry. Norm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, it is. It's that rich data. Like your your sales engineers know all the the bad spots in your product that are, that are making customers run away, and for some reason they're not the number one people that talk product people talk to. Makes zero sense to me, but here we are. It's it's probably not as fun as flying out to customer sites. I don't know. <laughs> well, they they do need to go out to to those steak dinners too. Hmm. <laughs> so is it like no one is being the bridge then? Um. Yeah, it, well, and I, I, I have some suspicions why, but <laughs> I, I think that work just isn't valued. The the work of under, of understanding a set of people and and taking that and turning it into something I can make somebody else understand, right? Yeah, the that's, that's bridge work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and find me an org that actually pays and promotes people for that work. I mean, the crazy thing is that's like paid work when it comes to sales, like you're being the translator to the customer. Um, but then no one, unless you are the direct line and it's like a super small organization and you're just going straight back to engineering, like then something's like, it's a game of telephone then maybe. I think it's actually more, I mean, some of that's true and definitely that's true, but it's almost like there's a caste system in orgs that have you know, certain, certain information from certain members of, of, of the org is worth less. Mm. No, that's for sure. Like, like operations is lower in the, in the hierarchy in most organizations. Sales uh, engineering is lower in the, in the hierarchy. Mm. Uh, support, customer support's almost the lowest in most places. So what's high in the hierarchy? Uh, typically engineering is pretty high and, uh, finance and sales. That seems counterintuitive to how it should be when like the whole point of the company is to make a product people want. Yeah, but it's the, it's where the incentives are, right? If you're forward revenue generating sales is, um, engineering gets to say, oh, we released these features. So it has that, that little dopamine brush, right? Like, oh, we pushed out this big thing. Um, it feels good. But if we say, oh, we fixed the thing that we got wrong the first time, like nobody, it doesn't, it doesn't hit the, I don't think it hits people's dopamine centers. It doesn't give you that rush. That's true. But if you think about the whole system, you know, played forward forever, it seems like you'd do better if you made the customer have dopamine. Yes. Yeah. That's I mean, that seems like the end goal here, right? <laughs> like. I, or 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 just a complete lack of adrenaline would be nice too, right? Like, like yeah, boring. If I, could, if I could use your product and it just cortisol. always works. The cortisol. Yeah. Like, like never that, underestimate that. using something in anger. <laughs> Indeed. Hmm. That yeah, was my pearl a, days. There, there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> where do you want to start? A, yeah, where 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 should we go, or or should we change the topic? What's uh, what are the cool kids doing these days? Or what are you what are you seeing? Because we we talked about the past and maybe some of the stuff we got here. So what do you what do you think is like the most exciting things you see in the tool space? In the tool space. Oh, um, because I was I was gonna say I, what I think the cool kids are doing is resilience engineering. Um, that's where I spend my time reading and and being excited. 
Um, but tool space. So, so not the tools. Well, the, I'm not, yeah, I'm not that excited about tools these days. <laughs> okay. So um, let's, let's define for our, for our listeners at home, what we're talking about when we talk about resilience engineering. Okay. Uh, I'm not great at this. So, so, and it's kind of notorious because resilience is by, we, we call it resilience engineering by default because it's kind of vague and it means a lot of things. It means different things, to different people. So we'll get that right out of the way. But what it really is, is the, the people in your organization that keep it, keep it going. Right. And so when, when unique situations arise, how do you react to that? So resilience is the, is that action of reacting to change. And it, it, I'm still not great at describing this, but like that's that's kind of the core of it. And so that's when, when you hear people talk about adaptability. And that's that's kind of that thing that we haven't been able to capture. And there's this discussion going on in the operations community about how do we teach people this? Um, and I think, I, I'm pretty sure you and I've talked about this before, Andrew. Um, but like the, this thing where people like me who started in the, the 90s or the early aughts, we got to just kind of walk in and get these jobs where we were just thrown in the deep end and given root on a bunch of machines and we figured it out. And today, you know, you join a large org where they've got a five, nine service, you know, that's generating a billion dollars a month or whatever. <laughs> okay. There aren't many of those, but you know, if it's gener generating a lot of revenue for the company, we're not exactly going to throw a new person at it with root on the machine and let them just start tinkering with stuff. So there's that gap of how do we teach people that ability to kind of go in and have a spidey sense and understand what's going on with the system and be able to make those leaps of intuition to finding the solution faster. And so that, that's that ability or adaptability. So there's, yeah, I, th I think, you know, and to, to like point out the interesting conversations, there's a lot of work and papers and John Allspot post stuff and, and, you know, adaptive, what's, what's their, John's um, adaptive article. capacity labs or adaptive, adaptive labs? capacity labs. Everything's yeah. got to be labs, I guess. Um, but yeah, adaptive capacity. So there's, there's cooks papers and all spas doing this stuff and he's dragging more and more people to go do these like human factors, um, mm. master's degrees and kind of talk about this stuff. But at the same time, uh, something you just said seems like I, I want, I want to explore this cause it's like, mm. okay we actually do take people and basically give them root access to the Kubernetes cluster. Like you, you kind of don't have a choice. And, yeah, and yeah. I think one of, one of the other sides of this, cause I believe, I believe in people and, and the process, but there's also things that tools can do um, mm -hmm. that make some of this easier and, and make what, what I, I mean, this has been a big focus on how I think about products and how I think about these these processes as well is, is you want to make it so the right thing is actually the easy thing, right? Exactly. Yes. And, and so you're not throwing people into the, into the incident management, maybe the first day, cause you know, probably wasn't, isn't going to end well for anyone, but they have to be able to do real things that interact with the system. Yes. Or, or, or they're not one, they can't do any work and, and two, they can't learn at all. Yeah, like we were talking about uh, before we started the recording about learning musical instruments and languages, right? If, if you can read about them all day long, but you're never going to learn how to play piano by reading books about reading piano. You have to sit down and play a piano. It's, it's, a, it's a physical thing. And I, I think fixing problems on computers is, is very much the same thing. You can read about programming computers and you can read about fixing computers all day long, every day, and 
it's not the same thing as actually sitting down and tinkering with it. So here, here's a maybe fun topic or maybe it goes nowhere. Uh, what, if, what about chat ops? How does that fit into your <laughs> I've been all over the spectrum on that one. Um, I am, uh, I, I was kind of all for chat ups for a little while because I, I like the idea of kind of having a shared command line. Um, in practice though, uh, when they're really effective, it doesn't actually really do that because the scroll back in those channels, you know, that some places have where they do a ton of chat ups, they just kind of fly by so fast that the context sharing doesn't really happen. And so it's, it's, and the other thing that's kind of happening is that the security constraints are starting to push down on a lot of this stuff. And so, you know, now, now instead of just, you know, saying, Hey bot, go do X, you have to do Hey bot, go do X. And it goes, Oh, I need you to go and do a dual authentication push on your phone to authenticate that. And so that takes out some of the, the, like the, the easy convenient access to stuff. And then it's a weird command line usually, right? Like some, some shops that, you know, I, I may have worked at some recently have a, a very natural language based um, command line for their chat ops. And it, it, it causes mistakes because most of us spend all our time on the bash basically. And where we expect double dash command lines, you know, or more Git style. And that I think that discrepancy is, is not great for everyone. But ultimately, like, I think it's not like a panacea. It's just another UX into the same tools. And when you build something to just be chat ops without building like an API or a web interface to the same thing, you're kind of limiting yourself to a really small and bad interface. It's like not command line editing um, or, you know, history editing. There's a lot of stuff that you lose compared to a shared shell. So like, why don't we just make shared shells better? I don't know. I mean, if you had a if you had a good enough shared shell, wouldn't it be the same as chat ops? It's almost like the. It would, but you'd have a lot more power. Yeah, definitely. So, so I, at least the way I'm interpreting it, it's a crit critique of the evolution of the implementation more than the idea. Hmm. Well, and the limitations of the platforms, so it gets a little more interesting in Slack if you're willing to to dive deep into how they you know, the full UI. So you do your slash command and then it pops up a UI in, in, in the Slack client. And then you can do button pushes and things like that. That can be really cool. Um, I think it starts to get a little away from what most people understand is chat ops though. Cause you're, at that point you're writing a UI. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but, but I get, yeah, this is, this is where we start to get on the edge of some really interesting topics. So you have, We've, we've already sort of hinted around this notion of uh, usability and user experience. And, and for some you know, obvious tasks, the, the command line is the most powerful, but also the most dangerous, right? And so figuring out, like if you're really trying to make the right thing the easy thing, do you want everyone to be doing everything from the command line? Maybe you do, but then what is the, what is the right balance of enabling constraints that, that give you that, that other goal of having the right thing be the easy thing, right? Because like the most powerful interface is everyone has root on everything. Right, right. Yeah, I'm not saying that. And I'm not even sure that the shared command line is the right thing. In fact, mm -hmm. command lines entirely are probably not the right thing just because of all the opportunities for mistakes. And that's why I'm kind of coming back around to uh, a, you know, a web interface that's for your control plane and invest in it. 
and few shops have really done that. I've seen a few like Skunkworks projects where people went off and built a control plane UI because they kept having so much trouble with the command line versions going sideways. And, and that config, config management and stuff like that never really got there, right? Where we could say, I just need to put in a few parameters and save it to a, to a database somewhere. I don't want to deal with Git. I don't want to write command lines. I don't want to have that cognitive switch from English to uh, the, the Slack interface to shell. Just give me a web interface where I can do a click, click, click. I can get some checking on the work that I put in there and then it goes off into a queue. So, th so this is um, a good segue back into resilience, I think, because hmm. all that is true and you want that and, and you know, people built like pieces of that to varying degrees. But then there's always the corner case where the right thing being the easy thing is like no longer an option. And now we gotta go figure out what's wrong with this thing that's basically sideways, right? And that's why you'll never get away from needing experts in your system. I yeah. don't think. Like you need to have people that, that understand the system and know how to go in and tinker with it. You need to grow them too. Yeah. Is it not like there's no there's no school that teaches people your system? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so that made me think of uh, tribal knowledge uh, as a fun topic too, because that, like how do you how do you transmit that? But how you make new members of the tribe? How you bring people into your tribe? Yeah. So, so one of the things that people have been uh, talking about late recently, may, maybe years, depending on you know, the circles you run in, uh, is is this notion of like the the, the chance to learn from an incident, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and certainly the, the resilience engineering people are big on this. Mm -hmm. So, so like, what's your, what's your personal understanding of like the best way to do this? Or how do you think about that problem? Oh, <laughs> so I, I tend to look at it as most of the time, the value is already, um, is already there in the incident. Or in th that the incident happens. So like Alspa would say, uh, and I think he might've got it from somebody else, that an incident is a unplanned investment in education for your company, right? But but one of the neat things is, is the way the way I did things at, or we did things at GitHub was, you know, we did, uh, all, we batched up all the reviews. And, and basically what we do is have work with the engineering team to write the, the basically the postmortem. It was just a, you know, they filled in all the fields and we talked them through it. And so we'd have them come and talk through what happened. And so this wasn't the ideal scenario, but what I saw happening was the people who worked on those problems learned a ton every time, right? Like you could tell, cause they'd come in and talk and you could, you could hear it in the way that they talked about it. Like, yeah, I noticed this other thing that was going on. So I took care of that, but really what I had to do was X, Y, and Z. And this will probably never happen again because I just never saw the situation before. And now I have, so we're good. Um, a lot of organizations don't like to stop there, but I think that there is actually a lot of value in saying, you know what, that team learned its lesson. We don't need to go and generate a bunch of, and, and this is the thing where they say throw out your, your incident template. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of, it's a little extreme to say it that way, but the idea being that like, you don't need to have everybody fill out that stupid form for every single incident for learning to happen, for organizational growth to happen. It has already happened. And so what you want to do is say, recognize that the people on say the service team running the, an edge web service, 
right? They, they have already gone out and discovered what the flaw in their product was. They wrote the issues for, for their backlog. So really, what am I adding to it to drag them through an incident review? Well, how do you know they wrote the, the, the issues in the backlog? And then you kind of made the comment earlier that this wasn't ideal. What, what would the ideal be for you? <sighs> um, it, it really just depends on the org for me. Um, you know, different places have, have you know, it, it depends on the culture, like, because like GitHub's culture versus Netflix's culture, they're very different. Um, and those two that I, I have a lot of experience with in recent years. Um, in Netflix culture, it's a very high context culture. And so you kind of know what's going on in, in your area of work and, and across the company at a higher degree than you do in most other orgs. And then GitHub has a, a more kind of human approach to things so that it's not that there isn't context, it's, it's less of an emphasis. And so it flows a little bit slower. And so there's a little bit more need to actually push people through these processes to do, like you said, to make sure that they, that incidents are being filed to make sure that backlogs are being groomed. Whereas in kind of more context versus control oriented environments, you might find that it's less necessary to actually project manage these things. And so I guess that my answer is, is like, it depends on the org. Um, I, I would love to figure out a better way to do the learning part, like say, okay, we had this thing happen. Um, Jess went in and found you know, 15 things that were broken that we should fix. And how do we, and take, how do we take all the stuff that, all she, stuff learned that she learned and then and cycle it back into some kind of program kind of where we can get it to other people? To other but people. That, but isn't, that isn't, nobody's really figured that out, I think. Yeah, that makes a lot, makes a lot, a lot of sense. Yeah, because it's hard to have everybody have else learn everyone else isn't reading some doc or something. But maybe it doesn't have to be a template. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's yeah, that, the thing, that's right? The like, thing, who has right? time to read these? Like, I, I, I read them, but that was my job. Was my job. go back to the theme we had in, in, in the earlier conversation where it's like we found these things, but then do, do we have an organizational incentive to make them any better, right? And if, if we feel like we have an organizational incentive, like if that high context or whatever is providing that, that fabric of our culture and focus and priority makes that something we want to do, then we'll do what, what Jess found. Otherwise, like who cares what Jess found? Right. And that goes back to the, the, the loop back to product um, is one way to do it. Um, there is kind of putting people on a checklist. And then there's this other thing that happens a lot. And, and I think is, I'm not going to say it's a problem. It's a common pattern where big event happens. So like last October when GitHub had that big outage, um, it generates a lot of energy to fix this, right? And that those moments are really important to get in there and really dig deep, but we don't want to focus on those too much, right? That's where the kind of the resilience engineering folks are pulling away and saying, we need to be looking at the bigger picture of like when things go well. But still, we have this problem of in, in most organizations, how do we generate the energy to get stuff done? And incidents are a great source of that energy. And so getting better at harvesting that and doing it in a way where people feel safe to actually reveal what they've learned, especially when it's embarrassing, like, oh, you know, I, I shipped that bug and I was in a hurry. So I hit the deploy button and skipped over the canary and it took down the site, right? But if, if that took down the, the whole site for an hour, 
I'm going to feel a lot of pressure to not be totally honest about where I screwed up, right? And so setting up an environment where that where that's available for me to say just, oh, gosh, I screwed up um, is super important. Yeah, I think like that's also just like constantly reiterating that like no one's perfect because everyone's been that person, mm. like, you know, pushing them back. If, if you haven't brought down production, you're not trying. Yeah. <laughs> the, so... Well, here's a here's a topic that might be another interesting thread. What are your take on SLOs as a self-identified SRE? Yeah, um, SLOs are a great way to fix alerting problems, to start to approach that ability to have that feedback cycle with product. Um, it also takes some of the human work out of it. And so it lets us kind of turn something that's been a very human process into something that's more mechanical in that we can say, oh, we're going to pull your top three SLIs, service level indicators, out of your service. So how many 500s versus 200s over minutes or whatever the time window is. And we're going to use that as a proxy for what your user experience is. Um, This is all really good stuff, right? It gets used in different ways in each organization because it can be a political tool as much as a technical tool. If we get it so that SLOs are in place and we've got alerts based on SLOs and we're starting to and we're making them user focused, that can have a large impact on the organization over time. Sometimes they get used for uh, reasons of creating a bludgeon, and I, I don't know if I, I'm, I'm down with that, uh, but I see the purpose, right? Because sometimes you got to find you got to find ways to hold teams accountable for their production performance. It's almost like if tribes aren't aligned with each other, they'll find a way to try to kill each other. Oh my God. Yeah, that's a thing. (laughs) Go humans. Go team human. So I've talked to a couple of people recently that were uh, telling me about alerting problems that they want me to look at. Um, And uh, the first one, that's what I said. First thing was uh, you should probably implement SLOs because they said, you know, we have this alert fatigue going on and we, we monitor everything all the way down to the disk drive and these alerts are going off all the time and we miss stuff because there are so many alerts and it, that that's that's a story as old as time and you know, like slos are a convenient way to throw a google book at somebody um and be like here is a, a path out of that hell um so i think they ha- they serve a lot of good purposes in the in that way yeah, no, I think I think they're an elegant solution. I just think like everything else that I see in their industry, when uh, there's sort of a fancy buzzword, people find a way to to adapt the behavior they didn't want to change to some, <laughs> somehow be the the representative of the of the new buzzword. Yeah, that does happen. <laughs> I mean, SRE is a great example, right? Like. I don't know, maybe a quarter of the SRE positions out there are what I would call SRE. Um, and the other 75% are aspirational. That might be generous. Yeah, I'm trying to be. I don't want to be gatekeepery about it, right? Because I I feel like it is a good thing when an operations team says, we're going to be SREs now. Um, And then, and then makes that leap. And it, a lot of times they don't get the support to keep going, right? To go out and say, okay, let's do SLOs or that, let's that's the key. The that's the key. To really do SRE the way the Google book talks about, you have to recognize how much real power SREs have inside of that org. 
And if you don't have that level of empowerment, then you're going to have a bad time. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I feel like we've been weird enough. Okay. For the time that we have. I mean, I would love to sit and talk about these things for the rest of the day, but to kind of bring it to, to a fine point, is there, is there some parting words of wisdom or advice you want to give to, uh, the youngins coming up in the, uh, SRE game? The youngins coming up in the SRE game. Um, or orgs trying to uh, do better at ops and resilience and the rest of it. Well, it's, it's like I've said a couple of times, uh, Go, go, go meet your product team, set up one-on-ones with them if you must, but go learn how your product life cycle works and figure out how to hook up to it. And, you know, and if there's another part or another side to that would be get in there and start working on systems and maybe not be playing at the high levels of, of abstraction that we have today, but go learn about the, the whole stack because that's how you build that kind of cognitive ability to reason under pressure and figure things out. That's how you rescue the high level abstraction when it goes sideways. Yes. Exactly. That's good. Um, I'm going to hit the button. Thank you. <laughs>